actually what we know is, I mean, the number of people reporting feeling lonely is so astronomically high right now that the likelihood of you saying, I feel lonely, and the other person saying, I'm so relieved you said that because me too, is extremely high. Hello and welcome to the Magnetic Woman podcast. I'm Pandora Paloma, life and business coach for women. I'm an author, speaker, mum of one, an all-round miracle and magnetism supporter. It is my mission to create change, to change how women think and feel, see their power and use their feminine force to become magnetic. I help women to live a life in alignment, elevate their mindset, expand their beliefs and live their vision in life and business. Now for me, magnetism is about being flexible, resilient, in tune with intuition, and really harnessing the power of our mindset and beliefs with aligned action. It's learning to let life flow, not always striving and pushing, but also learning to be open to receiving in new and magical ways. This podcast is a sprinkle of magnetic energy from my corner of the world to yours. Welcome, Sophie, to the Magnetic Woman podcast. It's so amazing to have you here. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's good. It's good. Come on in. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so excited. I'm just like diving straight in and talking over you. It's all good. It's all good. So instead of asking, who are you? What do you do? I'm actually really interested in what brought you here? What turning points in your life got you to where you are today, specifically as a as an author now? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, what brought you here? So um there's one really major turning point I suppose and that was that when I was 18 I was cocky uh believed I was probably immortal (laughs) infallible I think like most 18 year olds to be honest um and then one day I had my first panic attack and I really, really, really never imagined that I could have such a huge fall from confident to terrified. And at the time, I didn't know anyone who'd experienced panic. And actually, the only place that I really could access any information about mental health was the media, right? And even though, for example, One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest is way before my time, I'd seen it. and that was my only reference point, right? And that movie is very clear that people who struggle with their mental health fall into the categories of mad and bad and their lives are over. So I had this first panic attack, didn't know what it was, which made me fear it, which made them come in more strongly and more frequently. And then I assumed I was mad or bad and that my life was over, which obviously made everything much worse. And I experienced deep shame too, because I didn't really know who to tell because I didn't want to be judged by them in the way I was judging myself. So uh, long story short, I ended up starting to do like a mindfulness course and found yoga and then spoke to a therapist. And once I got a hold of my panic attacks, um, really there was no way I could go back to art school. 
I was like, I cannot believe this information is out there that could help us understand our psychology. Yet I had to wait till I was fully in the dark and absolutely terrified to access it. So I applied to do psychology and basically was like, I'm going to learn everything I can about psychology. <laughs> and then uh, once I kind of feel ready to, I'd like to get that information out into the world so no one has to feel the way I did then. So I did an undergraduate in psychology, a master's in neuroscience and a doctorate in clinical psychology because I like to take things very far when I stop them. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I like to go overboard on learning. So that's, yeah, that's my main life turning point that got me here. That's amazing. And taking psychology out of the ther therapy room, I know why that's so important. And I can see now why you believe that's important. Why is it so important, do you think, for the masses, like society in general? I, um, when you're a clinical psychologist in the UK, you have to work in, you train in the NHS. Um, and so from pretty much the moment that I started getting interested in psychology, I started working with people and the whole way through, particularly my doctorate. And then afterwards, when I'd qualified, I recognized that almost everyone I was seeing in initial sessions, it didn't matter what service I was in, whether it was adult mental health, children, mental health, adult physical health, adult neuro. I was seeing the same thing in initial sessions, which was no one had been taught the basic psychology that would have helped destigmatize their experience and help take the edge off when distress first arose. And I noticed that I was basically spending the first few sessions of every person's new therapy um, journey, if, we call, if we're gonna call it that, journey, um, teaching them this same basic information. And when you're in a time-limited service, as in you only have a certain number of sessions, that's that's a really upsetting thing to see, right? Say someone has six to 12 sessions and you're spending three of those teaching something that could have been taught in school. Basically, two things were happening. I noticed that people were experiencing the same kind of distress as I was at 18 and hadn't accessed the information they needed until they were kind of at rock bottom. And that some of the people who then got that basic information no longer needed therapy. They just needed this psychoeducation and listening ear. And then they could go off and... Um, feel more empowered to live the life they were hoping for. And then for other people, that's when their therapy really started, the more nuanced work. So, yeah, I was just thinking, if there's only one of me <laughs> and people are having to wait to get to the top of a waiting list to see me or one of many other therapists, what is the best use of my time? It is to get this information out from the behind the therapy room door out from the ivory towers of academia, out of the dusty old textbooks and get it to people before they need it. We shouldn't have to wait till we're struggling to find out this information. Like I like think about how much you learned in school that you don't use now, like sin, cos and tan. Seriously, what you know, how much time did I learn those things in maths? But we were never taught about our relationships. We weren't talk about, taught about what emotions are, what the fight or flight response is, why it's normal to struggle, why actually this message in society that tells us that happiness is the only emotion we should strive for is not only wrong, but is harmful. So, yeah, I'm trying to get that information to people wherever they are. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think I know from my experience of therapy how helpful it's been my service calls it the, the both and like I can be um very generous and also selfish and I can be happy and also simultaneously be struggling in something and this really beautiful space where it's like ah oh, yes because that's what it is to be human 
yes. and be okay with having the the contradiction, feeling like a bit of a contradiction sometimes, and that's okay. And it's when we aren't okay with it feeling something, or we don't think it's okay to feel something, that we go into that guilt or shame, or that is, as you say, it's it's not supporting anyone. No, it's actually one of the reasons that people's initial distress may escalate. So um, I love that you just brought up both and. Both and is one of my absolute favorite psychological concepts. The idea that two apparently opposing pieces of information can coexist at the same time. Um, I write about that in a manual for being human. Often when people come to therapy, for example, it is both true that they start to feel better and that they're thrilled about moving forwards, but they then grieve and feel sad about the period of time that they were struggling and how it was for them then. Um, so yeah, I just love that you talked about both and because I could talk about it all day. <laughs> I think I think it's such an important concept for, you know, as you say, <laughs> the manual for being human, you know, are such complex characters. Um, and, you know, I think there's a real beauty in understanding, well, it leads me onto the outline of the book in understanding where you've come from, um, what's keeping you here and how to move forward. And, you know, before we started speaking, obviously, as a coach, I'm very much about how we're moving forward, like, where are you going? How do we need to get there? But often I will identify with clients. This feels like it's a, a topic for, for therapy. You know, this is you know it's really important to know where people have come from and and what's keeping them stuck and very much my job is to help them in their business to move forward why do you feel it was important to create the book in this way in these sort of three very key segments because they're the three questions people ask in therapy so or in life and I've asked them too right why do I feel the way I do What's keeping me here and how do I move forward? So the book is structured into those three approaches because often the information that we get, and isn't it wonderful that more and more information is available about mental health? Often the information we get is very much um, psychoeducation. So what are emotions, for example, or not even what are emotions, how to cope with the strong emotions you experience, how to cope with your inner critic, how to cope with X and Y. But the reality is that even though mostly people come to therapy and maybe to coaching too with the questions of uh, help me with my emotions, help me with my relationships, why am I so cruel to myself? Each of us experiences our emotions in different ways. We have the same language for it, but the things that cause us to feel emotions and that dictates how strongly we feel our emotions will differ person to person depending on their DNA, the, the world they grew up in the information they were taught about their emotions, how they witnessed other people showing them, whether they feel like other people can be there for them or not. So for me, what was particularly, uh, what I was particularly excited about when I thought about putting this book together was I was like, I want a book that people can read and make sense of their own personal experiences in the world. They can answer the yes, the three questions that people come to therapy with, but it won't be prescriptive. It will almost be like, um, you know those choose your own ending games? Uh, choose those uh, choose your own ending stories, sorry. You can de you can read this book from front to back and layer it up and make sense of your own personal and individual journey, but you can also dip in and out and choose the bits that relate to you at any point in your life and make this book fit your experience. And know when to come back to certain points 
like there was a, a, a piece on on heartbreak and, and losing people it's like well you might not be in that situation right now but you know right next year so you have it to come back to exactly and so say for so with the in the book the way it's set out is not just answering those questions that first bit of what kind of why do I feel this way talks you through all of the areas of life that are continuously shaping you moment to moment um, the second section of what's keeping me here is that psychoeducation component that most of us weren't taught in schools, such as emotions, fight or flight response, inner critic, the coping skills that make us feel worse, modern dating. Um, and then the final bit is all the coping skills that we could all do with to move forwards. But yeah, you can go, you can dive in and out at any time. Maybe, for example, you've experienced your first intrusive thought. Maybe you've gone through your first or your 10th breakup. Um, and you're wondering why this one is particularly painful. All of these combine together to shape why you feel so strongly in any moment. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you mentioned inner critic. I've started rewording, renaming inner critic, inner protector, because ultimately it is there to protect, isn't it? <laughs> yes. To anyone listening, we just did a dance because I'm so thrilled about this. Yes, your inner critic is not there to harm you. It is there to keep you safe in your relationships. It arises very, very early on in life. Once it's looked around you and figured out what is expected of you, what a good person in inverted commas would look like in the eyes of the people you love, your faith, your community. And then anytime you go to do something that is outside of that good person, moral person, acceptable, loved person's behavior, it acts as kind of judge, jury and executioner. So it tries to swoop in and shame you out of doing that act to keep you safe in the long run. And the critic isn't just about what we're told, is it? It's also about what we observe. Can you explain a little bit more about that? So what's really interesting is the world shapes us and we shape the world in return. Okay, so for example, you might be told, let me just think of a quick example of that. Okay, so... Someone might tell you or make you feel growing up like there's something unacceptable about the way you look. Or, for example, you might look in magazines and see that people look a certain way. They're always photoshopped in a certain way. So you've been told the message there that to be good enough, you look a certain way. Now, when you go out of the house as an adult or even as a teenager, you will look around the world, assuming that other people are going to be looking at you thinking, you don't look the way they look in magazines. Right. You will start perceiving the world based on your beliefs and your fears about what's expected of you and whether you match up or not. So all through the day, we have experiences that are actually happening, i.e. someone tells you something. And then we have the experiences linked to what we perceive is happening. So for a kid whose inner critic is developing, there is the real stuff, right? As in someone saying, don't do that. You're an idiot. What's wrong with you? And then there's the perceived stuff. So there's stuff that we interpret as meaning there is something not right about me and this needs to change. So there's always this gray area, right? There's the factual someone said it and then there's the, hmm, it feels like you meant this. What we're making it mean and what we're making it mean about me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And your inner critic isn't taking any risks, right? It's not going to be like, oh, maybe they didn't mean that. <laughs> because it wants to make sure that you're always perceived as lovable and you're safe in your relationships. So it's not going to take any chances. Like that sounded like a slight. That sounded like there's something wrong with me. So I'm going to add that to my bank of don't do that in the future behaviors. 
I totally. You mentioned in the book loneliness, mm. and this is something I've mentioned a few times over the last what, eighteen months, sixteen months, um, from the start of a kind of first, first lockdown. Um, and I loved that you outlined the difference between solitude and loneliness because they are very different. Mm. And I mentioned to you earlier. I am an introvert. I need a lot of alone time. I really recharge from, you know, being in that space. But I I have definitely moved into loneliness over the last six months and spent lots of time wishing that I had, you know, a, a, a deeper connection with, you know, someone close. Do you think, it, it, we, is it growing? Is loneliness growing in society? Massively. Massively, and, like the numbers are scary. And why do you think, because I come from, a, you know, I'm always anchoring back into what I call my centred self. It's, mm. I'm not alone. I have great support around me. I have just, through, you know, a global pandemic, had to spend more time alone. I live alone. It is what it is. And I come at it from my centred self, but I feel very privileged and lucky that I'm able to do that. But it didn't take away the feelings of loneliness. No. So, and I totally understand that. And I, um, I think that lots of people listening will agree that they've had that experience too. So I'd say the first thing is the difference really between solitude and loneliness is whether we believe we have any control over the length of time that we're going to be alone for, whether we choose it or not, and whether we still feel connected. Because often, for example, I need a lot of time alone to recharge as well. Um, I deplete very, very quickly around people. But solitude is when you choose to go and do something by yourself, but know that at the moment that you want to connect to someone, there is a web of people who will reach back in. Loneliness is where you feel like you have no choice. You couldn't end this um, this separation from others, even if you wished to, and that no one around you is fully connected to you. So, for example, if you ever had that experience of being in a room full of people yet felt like you were an island on your own. When I was having panic attacks, for example, at 18, there were lots of people around me, but no one I could truly share with or who I thought you would absolutely understand what I'm telling you. So I felt deeply lonely and I had no idea how I was going to end that disconnection. So that's the first thing. The second thing is loneliness is meant to physically hurt. There is a reason for it, right? Our ancestors, the reason we survived as a species is because we were in groups we fought together to get resources and to survive. We also, you know, had a lovely time procreating and socializing, but any of our ancestors, if they'd been alone, it could have been instant death. So if you think about them trying to sleep, for example, they would have woken up repeatedly to keep an eye on the danger in their environment. Their body would have been sent into a stress response, this kind of preparation to fight or run at any time. And it's meant to signal, get back to the group, get back to safety. So for anyone who's going through loneliness, we feel it in our body, right? So you talked about, for example, coming at it from my centered self, but still feeling it. Well, because our our nature, right, is going to override that mindfulness that we work on. It's going to say, yep, I see you being mindful. Great, great, great. But get back to the group, get back to the group, right? So it it sends us into a stress response because it's, it's meant to feel 
intolerable. So you do something about it. And then the final thing, sorry, I won't whittle on for too long, is the fact that one of the reasons that loneliness is on such a huge um, increase is because there's many different kinds of loneliness. So you're talking about what we would call kind of situational loneliness, a loneliness that has arisen purely because your environment has taken away the opportunities for you to connect to other people. We see it, for example, um, in those who move to a new country or a new city. It's this temporary disconnection that is purely based on the fact that you don't have an opportunity to end your solitude. So for a lot of people, it is increasing, but purely the act of um, restrictions ending and us being slowly able to integrate with the people we know and love again will decrease some of this loneliness that we're seeing and experiencing day to day. And do you think that, because I wanted to touch on obviously the last 16 months and, and the effects that we'll see of that in society. Oh. You know, it's happened on a global level. I like to think that we will go back to wanting connection, wanting to be with people in real life. And I'm interested kind of what you think will be sort of the, the, the biggest the, the biggest support the, the support that we will need you know at coming off the back of this mm, well each other um I think it's going to be a very slow progress to whatever the future looks like because even though most of us or many of us now I'll say deeply crave connection having had so long without it without it um a lot of us don't really know how to get involved with new communities to make new friends to reach out to people and say oh, I've been having a terrible time, how about you? Because a lot of us feel like we have to keep a brave face on as well. Um, and a lot of people are now experiencing what may be totally temporary social anxiety, right? We feel rusty in our social skills. We feel like if we do see people, we don't have anything to talk about. And the uncertainty of the world and the uncertainty of putting ourselves out of our comfort zone is just making us want to say I know I want to connect with you but I feel really scared so I think I might avoid it so there are there are some barriers that we can see already coming up to people getting the connection they need but they are not insurmountable because what we're going to need moving forward is each other and do you think the word vulnerability is coming up for me a lot in what you're saying with loneliness and with you know the challenges that we've been reconnecting it can be really difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. to feel safe in being vulnerable. Um, I think also people think if I say I'm lonely, if I say I'm anxious, what the other person is going to think is there's something wrong with you. Actually, what we know is, I mean, the number of people reporting feeling lonely is so astronomically high right now that the likelihood of you saying I feel lonely and the other person saying, I'm so relieved you said that because me too, is extremely high. Likewise with social anxiety. So I think vulnerability has been, for lots of people, has been trained out of them. But the irony is actually the deepest connections and sometimes the fastest way to build a relationship is by sharing that side of yourself that you fear you'd be judged for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Something that I have been working with this year is creating group business coaching containers. 
and the beauty of seeing women in that space sharing their versions of challenges and their versions of celebrating themselves and it gets to reflect back to each other that actually we're all feeling many of the same things and Mm. it's really I think it's probably been one of the the things that's really helped me through my own loneliness because I am connected and I know that there's shared experiences Mm. yeah it's so lovely isn't it being around people with like-minded people who know how we feel there's nothing like it yeah and the really big you know I suppose learning for for so many of us is as you say actually the more open and honest we get to be about how we're feeling the deeper those connections yeah and also what's really interesting is often when we feel like we mustn't be vulnerable we often forget that it is when someone else opens up to us, shares how they're feeling, that we feel so deeply honoured that they feel safe to be around us and share that with us. We forget that when we are vulnerable with others, when we share ourselves, they might actually see it as a gift rather than a sign that there's something wrong with us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's such a beautiful place to be, isn't it? That really deep yeah. Of, of openness and connection. Now, something else I really want to touch on. Obviously, in my work, I'm working with female founders, female entrepreneurs, women in business, whatever label we want to give it today. And this is something I've definitely noticed within myself. Um, And it's finding a balance of being independent. I think in this rise of, I said earlier, like the female boss, you know, I'm so independent. I am absolutely so independent. You know, I am responsible um, for the mortgage and my daughter and, you know, I I, I co-parent. You know, I'm a very responsible, independent person. However, I I have noticed within myself and I see this sometimes in, in my clients and communities and friends this real um forgetting you know that actually connection is a is a basic human need and can we go too far into the the you know the the independent state yes as someone who um was always extremely proud of my hyper independence because i have an avoidant attachment style and therefore since being very young it's been very important to me to kind of be self efficient Um, this question really speaks to me because I've been that person. I have been the person who has set out and been like, I am going to do this business or I am going to do this doctorate Um, and (laughs) have kept going and kept going and not listened to my, the warning signals that said maybe it's time to ask for help or even just simply have a chat with a friend about how things are quite tough right now. So yes, hyper-independence is brilliant, right? It means that we can trust ourselves. We have a sense that we can make change in our own lives. It makes us feel resilient. However, not only does it mean that we miss out on these lovely opportunities of sharing and feeling connected, it can lead us to burnout, right? We start to notice those signs of, oh, maybe I should slow down or, oh, maybe I'm tired. And we often go, no, it's fine. I've got this or for example you've talked about mortgage and children like actually I don't have the luxury of slowing down I must keep going 
Um, and when you're hyper-independent, the idea of sharing with someone or asking them for help can feel like admitting failure. So we refuse to do it. And we keep almost like, you know, the, you know, the Shakespeare tragedy Macbeth, where you know from the beginning they're kind of marching towards this tragedy, which you can't stop. For some of us hyper-independent women, it can feel a bit like that. Like you're marching towards this point of burnout and you kind of know it's happening, but you refuse to do anything about it because you're sure you can, if you can just keep going each day, you'll get there. So to anyone who's listening, who feels like both myself and you, Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It is a real opportunity to have people on your side who can hold the button when you just need simply some downtime to recoup because life is a marathon, not a sprint. Working for yourself particularly is a marathon. And that little voice in your mind that's saying you need to be doing this all the time, seven days a week, is often what causes us to burn out and sinks businesses rather than helps them thrive over time totally it's that balance of masculine and feminine knowing when to take action move forward and then also knowing where you get to sink into receiving and being creative and playful and that really um i i see it like a figure of eight you know we're just dancing with the, the you know the polarities as well of masculine and feminine and working out when we're in that quite wounded you know for me the I love how you call it hyper um, independence like that for me was you know my wounded masculine and I wrote something about it yesterday on on the gram I knew I felt like I had something to prove but I don't know what that was or who I was trying to prove it to yes very much myself you know I've got to yeah. be seem to be doing the things um maybe not so much now that I'm working for myself there was pieces of that but in my previous career in comms you know I was the first one and the last one out work hard play harder and I didn't even realize at the time but I was in like a, a sort of low-level burnout most of the time you know it would get yeah yeah, yeah. you're a perfectionist yeah uh, yeah yeah totally totally so it also when you're a perfectionist too which I me too. As in, I've done a lot of work on it. So I like to think hopefully it's the thing of my past, but it, you know, it's bit rears its head. It's the fact that it's not just hyper-independence. It's this idea that we must do things perfectly. And firstly, there's no such thing as perfect. As hard as you work, you will never achieve it because it doesn't exist. But particularly to a perfectionist, perfectionists have exceptional error detection systems. They can find flaws in things that other people would see and think it was well, flawless. So when you're a perfectionist, you you really are marching towards burnout unless you're very careful because you will just continuously keep striving for this goal and the goalposts will continuously keep moving. Totally. I The process of learning to let go, what helped me work through a lot of my perfectionism tendencies was, will this matter next month? If it, yes. if it won't matter next month, can I let it go? And actually, yeah. I think really understanding my values what's important to me in life and it meant that all of those other things that I was trying to make perfect or control actually weren't really that important because they weren't part of my value structure therefore I could let them go and yeah totally I hope it is a thing of the past It, it definitely creeps in for me it's a people pleasing and I think coming from a background of having um 
an eating disorder, body dysmorphia, that for me was all about trying to be perfect, to look perfect. And of course, you know, well, perfectionism, I mean, it's what it, what makes perfect because what's perfect to you would be different to what's perfect to me. And, you know, you can't... Well, also what we're protecting ourselves from will be different, right? As in like very few people are um, perfectionists for no reason. So for example, someone might uh have a be perfect driver just because society has told them that that's expected from them and therefore when they can't achieve perfection the thing they fear may happen is judgments from society someone so my perfectionism comes from much younger right so from like first few years of life where I will have developed and a lot of people do this uh, a belief outside of my conscious control that if I could be perfect, maybe I would be accepted and people would stick around. And so therefore for me, like when I think about um, when I used to risk imperfection or, you know, when I didn't quite get the grade or when I, there was flaws in something, my brain would be predicting this kind of abandonment that goes all the way back to childhood. So each, even though perfectionism is something a lot of us share, again, the thing that we fear will happen if we're imperfect will differ from person to person. And often it's quite important that we understand what we fear will happen if we're imperfect. Um, because once we learn how we can tolerate that or recognize that thing is unlikely to happen um, and then bring in other coping skills to manage, we will move forwards. But when you said, you know, hopefully it's a thing of the past and I said the same, our brain, when there's new stresses in our life, will use what works so if it believes that for example your perfectionism or my perfectionism is what helped us survive childhood or helped us survive a different period of life when a new big stressor comes in it's going to be like hey I've got this coping skill it worked for years let's try it again now and suddenly you're right back in it <laughs> back at the perfectionism disco like hold on a minute yes <laughs> exactly yeah, exactly bringing exactly. on a different different kinds of moves you know yes 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 doesn't mean it's a step backwards it just means you know it's a temporary sideways step at the perfectionist disco that's such a good expression yes thank you thank you the last question I have as always is what does being a magnetic woman mean to you well I actually would love to hear what it means to you first I was thinking about this so my version of magnetism is um because the word gets used a lot but for me yeah. being a woman is bridging the gap between who you're presenting as to the world and who you truly are Ooh. and within that piece is your values living your values understanding the both and and you know <laughs> complexity of being human trusting in your intuition focusing more on your being and not always your doing um, and something I say all the time is that expanding and exploring you know being curious going within um, in order to change the outer and um, that's what magnetism is really bridging that gap and that comes from my own personal journey of being all the versions that I thought I should be and never quite knowing who I was and you know so it, that's really what brought me here um, so yeah I love that um, that really resonates with me because when I think about people I might call magnetic women they are nearly always the people that I feel like have a deep sense of self and calm in that self. I don't mean they're not insecure. I don't mean that, you know, they don't have times when they wobble or they struggle, but there's a deep knowing inside them of this is okay. I am okay. And when you're around them, you feel drawn to them because you're just like, wow, you are so you. <laughs> you are so yourself. And that is so incredible. And I can't get enough of it. 
juicy juicy yes that is exactly the vibe that I am working with when I speak about being magnetic so thank you your book is out where can people buy it tell us a little bit about about it so uh it is out it's a Sunday Times bestseller woohoo um I honestly can't believe it it's just bigger than my wildest dreams that that could happen so you can buy it from wherever you buy your books <laughs> so in the UK for example um your local bookstore Hive is a really good place online so that you can get it delivered to your local bookstore if you want to support independent then Waterstones Amazon they're available there if you're outside of the UK the book depository does free worldwide shipping which is just fantastic because that's normally the stinger, isn't it? When you want to buy a book and then it's another 20 quid to get it to you if you're in a different country. So yes, wherever you buy your books. Beautiful, beautiful. And what's next for you? Well, there's a second book. Yay! <laughs> no, which is very exciting. Um, I haven't started writing yet, but I'm actually taking time off uh, seeing clients for therapy because I need a break. I will then be writing my second book. I don't think I'm allowed to tell you about it. Otherwise, I was just about to launch into it. And maybe going to set up a course, I think, maybe. But mainly it's going to be about relaxing and recuperating since the book came out. Beautiful. And if you want to catch Sophie and I, we're going to be at Wilderness together. Yes, we're speaking at Wilderness. Yes, that's so exciting. Gosh, that's soon. Yeah. So there we go. I will keep all of the um, links to purchase the book and all of the things that we've discussed in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I loved it. Lots of love. Lots of love. Bye. In this podcast, I mention The Magnetic Woman. It's my signature program, a four-week course with extra juicy bonuses, helping women to find their truth and access and accelerate their magnetism in life, love, wealth, business and beyond. Please do come and find me, pandorapaloma.com. It's called The Magnetic Woman, The Doors Are Open, and I would love to see you there. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review Every Little Helps. And if you'd like to share it with me and your friends, you can tag me on the gram at Pandora Paloma underscore. With love and magnetism, over and out.